welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. We spent too long talking about gender and sex without specific reference to scripture. So let us amend that in this sec second lecture. Um, we are going to be doing, looking, we were going to be looking at some uh, specific passages, but, but probably more generally, we'll be taking a look at sort of some, some big picture things, some, some narrative things, some, uh, the, the story of, of creation and and Adam and Eve, and uh, reading, trying to read this account. I use the word story not because I believe this is anything but unadulterated truth, but because there's so much, so much symbolism and significance to the accounts uh, in Genesis, especially early Genesis. So join with me in looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And I'll read this, and then we'll... Um, I want to introduce sort of where we'll be going in this second lecture um, before then kind of getting back to this text. Um, and we'll be looking at Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Reading from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, 
You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Well, this, uh, in this lecture, we are wanting to consider the Trinitarian foundations of sex and gender. And if you were here in our fall lectures uh, on the Trinity, you will, have, you will certainly have a head start on what we'll be looking at this evening, although I will shortly uh, try to give you at least a little bit of an overview of some of the things that we learned that will help you to, uh, to grasp some of what will be unfolding here this evening. As I mentioned prior, this will probably be our most theophilosophical uh, lecture, um, but I hope that even if there are certain aspects to it that you find difficult to comprehend, that the result will be that you will be tantalized rather than overwhelmed. That's, that's my hope, <laughs> that you will, you will think, wow, there's so much here, and even if I only grasp a bit of it, it's amazing, rather than going, oh, that's completely overwhelming, I don't understand anything, and, and that was useless. So, um, but what I want us to see just at the outset, taking a look at verses 26 to 27, is first of all that you have here God taking counsel with himself, and I argued in our Trinitarian lectures that I do believe, as many of the early church fathers argued, that when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, that he, that, that is referring to, to our triune God. God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it is within the context, in the just close association of this Trinitarian self-disclosure that we have this statement of the creation of man. That close association ought to tell us that when God then sets forth to make man in our anthropology, in our, in our understanding of how man is made and constituted, that we should, un, we should, we should be looking for Trinitarian patterns and Trinitarian truths evidenced in man. But of course, we see here not only that God created man, but specifically in verse 27, that he created them male and female. Again, in close association with this Trinitarian self-disclosure. We would expect, based on this alone, that, okay, is there something, we, should, we would expect to ask, I should say, you know, is there something here about male and female in particular that evidences or images the tri-unity of God? Now, the answer is yes. And in at least these following ways. And we'll unpack this in much greater uh, much greater, greater ways. But first of all, we see that male and female constitutes a diversity within one human race. 
that one human race is called man. And yet, within that one race of man, there is a diversity, male and female. And this is at least somewhat parallel to the fact that there is one God, but within him there is a diversity of Father, Son, and Spirit. But of course, there's also a unity. It's a, it's a diversity and unity and a unity and diversity. He created him, male and female, he created them. So it is, it is one race named after Adam, just even as there is one God. So both these things working in concert, there is within God a unity and a diversity. There is within man a unity and a diversity. Now, a couple comments about that before we begin to look a little broader. Um, the first is this, that this word diversity is a good word. Um, I don't know of, of other words that would express the same thing that, uh, that we might want to use instead, but we understand that the world has co-opted this word. The world uses this word diversity as a bludgeon against the biblical truth of diversity. And if you're like me, sometimes a little ornery, sometimes a little cynical, uh, you, you know, tend to get worn down by misuses of words and it tends to make you not like very good words that get constantly misused and, and uh, constantly used to, you know, bludgeon our, our, our beliefs. Uh, but the word diversity is a good word. And let me suggest to you, just at the outset here, that as much as our world loves to use the word diversity, that our world actually hates it. Just think about that. It is a fascinating irony that a world uses the word diversity constantly, but it actually despises the differences between men and women. Despises the fact that male and female are different. So it is the Christian, it is, it is the Bible that really upholds this diversity. And in upholding the diversity, as we will see, it's Certainly, certainly not proven yet, although perhaps in your own experience. Uh, but we will see, too, that as you uphold this diversity, you do also uphold uh, the unity. Because, as I at least briefly mentioned in the last lecture, man is dyadic. Male and female face one another, so to speak. So, a word about diversity. So, uh, let me, before we get into the rest of Genesis and develop a, um, a triad, actually two triads that are related, um, let me give you, let me give you um, a refresher on what we learned in our Trinitarian lectures uh, late last year. And for those of you who are new with us, uh, hopefully this will help you um, to understand where it is we're going and, and to be able to grasp some of how we're going to build out the structure or the scaffolding of our um, of contemplating the differences and the unity of male and female. So, what we discovered through several of our lectures uh, in the fall was that 
the Trinity provides a pattern for our thinking and for many other similar patterns, triadic patterns in Scripture. Um, so the basic truth that this illustrates is that because God is fundamentally triune, everything he does uh, is, it bears this Trinitarian imprint, right? I mean, you would expect this. I don't think this is that controversial. The irony is, it is a little controversial in, in some theological circles. It really ought not to be. Um, if God is triune at a fundamental level, everything he does, everything he creates is going to it's going to reflect this aspect of his nature. So, um, I believe that we see the interrelationships and the order of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bearing out in a lot of other triadic patterns in Scripture. Um, maybe it would be helpful for me to give you a couple. One that we find in Genesis chapter 1 is the heavens the earth, and the seas. And what we find in many of these triads is that the, 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 the perspective that sort of reflects the Father is an upward perspective, right? The heavens. The perspective that reflects the Son is sort of an inward perspective. This is, this is our earth. It's made for man. And the uh, the the outer perspective reflects the Holy Spirit. The seas, they're, 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 they're sort of out there. All right. uh, another uh, way that this has sometimes been presented is in the tri-perspectivalism, uh, oh, um, which is a little differently than presuppositionalism, although they're linked. <laughs> um, the tri-perspectivalism of John Frame. And he uses... The, uh, the triad of normative, which I, you know, I think is easier to think of as, as upward, similar, maybe not exactly the same, but normative, existential, meaning inward, um, and, and uh, situational. Situational. I think, it, I think it is helpful to think of upward, inward, outward. Right? And, uh, and we discovered... In, in unfolding this pattern, that the Trinity itself um, reflects this, <laughs> this Trinitarian way of looking at it, if you will, it, which sounds a little strange and, and maybe, maybe on one hand seems like so obvious to be, why does it even bear mentioning, but on the other hand maybe sounds kind of strange. Um, but so for instance, one of the things we looked at is how it is that the three persons are united. Okay, so I'll just let you think about that for a second, if this is a new thought for you. How is it that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one? We know they are, but, but how? And the answer that we contemplated is a triadic answer. First of all, they are consubstantial. That is, that they share the same nature. And in this perspective, uh, it kind of reflects the Father. This is kind of the normative perspective. Um, secondly, they have eternal relations. That is to say that the Father is the Son, 
is the, the father is the father of the son and the son is the son of the father. Right? They're, they're interrelated in their relations. And this uh, represents sort of that existential or inward aspect to how they are united. And then thirdly, they are one, the three persons of the Trinity, by mutual indwelling. That is that, as, as Christ says in John 17, uh, that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. And so this represents sort of an outward aspect to how they are one. Um, what I want to suggest to you as we move into contemplating the doctrine of sex and gender and how it has a Trinitarian form or foundation, is a view, I want to ask the question now, not how the three Trinitarian persons are one, but how male and female are one. Right? Because that's what we saw in Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Right? Singular. Well, how are they singular, male and female? And then, once we have that in place, we're going to take that same perspective, and we're just going to kind of fold in on the sort of the back side of it, and we're going to see, okay, now that we've seen that, um, you know, how are, the th how are the two one, we're going to see how the one are two. All right? And, uh, and we're going to see that there's a lot of similarities there. Uh, and in fact, those similarities are very similar to what I've already told you about how the Trinity is one consubstantial, eternal relations, mutual indwelling. All right? So, um, maybe just before I, I begin with unfolding this, uh, I will mention one thing that um, it, maybe it needs to be said. And that is that because God is three, and man is two, until we incorporate children. I'm not going to go there quite yet. Um, because God is three and man is two, we would expect, and it is the case, that male and female do not map specifically onto any persons of the Trinity. Okay? This is important. Um, we'll see, rather, that male and female map onto certain roles and relationships within the Trinity. Okay? It is not, however, that in some way, for instance, the Son is male and the Holy Spirit is female. Okay? Or that, you know, somehow, well, well, also, this is a little bit of a different issue, but uh, I'll at least state it right now. It is not as if, you know, um, God is, you know, we can't say that God is female, for instance. Uh, it's a bit of a diff different issue. Maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll say it, but leave that aside for a minute. It's a bit of a different issue. Um, so we, we're not going to be mapping gender in a one-to-one -one correspondence upon the Trinity. That, uh, <laughs> that would be a, a grave error. But, uh, but we do want to see some, some reflections of the Trinity in roles and relationships. So, uh, first of all, then, 
The question we're asking is how are male and female united? How are male and female one? Here's my first answer, and I believe it reflects the father. It reflects the normative perspective, and that is that male and female share the same image or nature from God. Right? And we see this in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. When it says God created man in his own image, even though it is in reference uh, grammatically to male, it is referring to the entire human race. So you know then that when that whole human race is then you know, differentiated into male and female, you already have straight in your mind that both male and female are made in the image of God. They share the same nature as being made in the image of God. Um, this is, because it's the normative perspective, one of the um, characteristics of the normative perspective is that it tends to be the most obvious. Okay? And, I, and I think this is, for us, at least the most obvious, that okay, male and female share the same nature. We're, we're people. We're, we're, we're mankind. We're the human race. Um, but this is, you know, this is an important part of chapter two. You'll recall that in chapter two, or if you look at it, we see that God creates Adam first. We'll get there in a second, because that is also important. And, uh, and, you know, God says, it's not good for this man to be alone. I want to make a helper uh, for him. And he proceeds to bring the animals to him. And, 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 and Adam names them all, but there's not a helper fit among the animals for Adam in carrying out the, uh, the function that God has given to him, which is um, maybe more than this, but explicitly to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Right? So you've got the fact that now when God brings Eve to Adam, he says, okay, now this is finally bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We'll come back to this passage a, a couple other times, but the point is, okay, this being is like me, shares my nature. Male and female share the same nature. We are united in that. And even though this is perhaps an obvious, um, you know, unifying aspect to the human race, uh, it's, it's, it's worth thinking about. It's worth thinking about because at times in the past, women were not always treated as equal. Sometimes women were treated in some cultures closer probably to animals than to males. They were not treated as being, um, you know, equal before God. Uh, even though, yes, there are some distinctions in, in role. Um, so this is, this is important. You might be able to argue, I'm not sure how, how strongly you, you could push this argument, but you, you might be able to argue that in the, this day and age that, well, I'll frame it like this, I'll, I'll frame it in sort of a soft way, that, that males are often uh, repudiated maybe, or lessened in this culture, uh, certainly their roles and their strengths are not upheld uh, within our culture. Uh, and there are certain, at least a certain subset of feminism that would seek to um, 
actually make women greater than men, as if having a greater nature. Uh, you see this in some of the goddess um, language that's used around women. And some of it's very overt paganism, but it's, it's of women having kind of a greater nature. So this, you know, even though this might be kind of an obvious point, I think it is still worth uh, thinking about and reflecting on. So, first of all, male and female are united because they share the same nature. This is kind of the upward or normative perspective. Second of all, we are united because we are from one another. So remember that when I spoke about the Trinity, just moments ago, remember that I mentioned eternal relations, that the Father is the Father of the Son, and the Son is the Son of the Father. And we could unpack that as we did in the last lectures about the Holy Spirit, but we we're not going to do that now. But when we come to male and female, we read that they are from one another. Now, most clearly, this is communicated to us in the creation of Eve in Genesis chapter 2, where God takes uh, from the side, the word, you know, it's, it's debatable whether it should be the word rib or side. Um, we heard, uh, I heard some teaching on Saturday that argued strongly that the word should be side, and there may be some symbolism to that, uh, because it's an architectural metaphor. Um, but God took from Adam and, and created Eve. So Adam was first, Eve was second, but Eve is from Adam. So this, this binds them. But turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because we don't stop there. We know, in fact, that there is a complementary truth that Paul makes clear, and which is <laughs> quite clear in all of our experiences as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8. For man, was, uh, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. So there's that, that Genesis, the Genesis 2 truth. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman and all things are from God. All right? So... There's no independence here. There is rather a unity because even though woman came from man originally, now uh, man is born of woman. And so uh, this too is a unifying factor. Um, it has often been argued that, uh, you know, when, when a man acts poorly towards, uh, you know, another, another girl or maybe his girlfriend or even his wife, uh, Lord forbid, that, you know, it's sometimes said, you know, didn't, didn't this man have a mother, right? Like, you didn't treat your mother like that, presumably. Um, and, and, and the point is this, that we're all interconnected, male and female, in this unity that we are from one another. And this unifies us. And, you know, we could, we could bear out some contemporary uh, you know, questions or, 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 or issues that come from this right now where we have, uh, you know, I mean, I think there's 
clear evidence that our society and the devil is at work in trying to pit man against woman and woman against man, and it, it just creates chaos in the whole culture. We're rather to be unified in that we are from one another in, in various ways. Um, so that is sort of the inward perspective on how it is that we are united. We are from one another. Um, and so now let's move to the kind of the outward perspective of how we are united. And um, here now, I, I just want to pause and I want to go back to our Trinitarian lectures. And apologies to those if this is uh, to those who may not have heard those lectures yet. But you may recall those who did that one of the things we noted about the Holy Spirit in these triads is that often the Holy Spirit or third part of these triads actually had two separate parts because the Holy Spirit not only enfolds bringing about unity to, to the Godhead, but he also unfolds. And we see this in how the Holy Spirit uh, brings about creation. And even though we would say, for instance, that creation is not necessary, in fact, it would be heresy to say that creation is necessary, yet we might say, and I have said, that it is uh, almost inevitable, I've used that word, that, you know, because uh, the Father is fecund and is, and is bearing eternally the Son. And because the Son is the fullness of God in every way, and because the Holy Spirit comes from the Father through the Son um, and, and, and you know, binds all things together in unity, then it's, it's fitting that there should be an, an unfolding of God within creation. So, uh, within our, some of our triads, we sort of had an enfolding aspect, sort of a 3.1 you know, or a 3A, and then an unfolding aspect, which we you, know, you could call a 3B or, or what have you. So I'm going to do that with this answer here. Okay? So again, we're asking the question, how are male and female united? And I'm going to call this Holy Spirit 1. All right? Uh, this uh, Enfolding aspect is this, that there is a dyadic fit with one another in sexual union. A dyadic fit with one another in sexual union. Right? That we are one in marriage. That as the man leaves his father and his, and his mother and holds fast to his wife and they become one flesh. There's that unifying function. That's a sexual union. A sexual act is being spoken of there, and that brings unity within the marriage. Um, now, clearly, this aspect of unity is, uh, is particular to marriage. It's particular to sexual union. Um, but there is a certain reflection of this, even apart from the sexual union itself. Um, there are ways in which, you know, even if you're working in a mixed group of, of men and women, the, the sexual differences um, fit with one another and complement one another uh, in, in beautiful ways that, that unify and, and, and show forth that there is a unity of male and female. Again, it's not, as, it's not, it's not the same picture, but it's, it's 
similar, uh, even though a weaker picture. So the second part of this third answer, okay, so the first one was that there's a dyadic fit with one another in sexual union. So, I mean, it's very clearly they should become one flesh. And that is that there is a procreation or family unifying effect, right? Fam procreation or family unifying effect. So this is the, this is now the uh, unfolding aspect of unity. So um, it, it brings about greater unity when a male and female come together in marriage and they have children. And it binds them together in a new way. In a new way. And, uh, you know, there are ways that are positive that we could illustrate this. I'm going to illustrate this by means of a negative example. Um, you know, recently I, I heard uh, this situation of a, of a friend whose, um, whose marriage came apart. And the kind of situation where... Uh, as far as I understand, one spouse is particularly responsible and they have children. They've got, in fact, not, not they, they have several children and they're, they're not all grown up. They're, they're in the middle of, of their kind of their, um, you know, developmental stages, many of them. And there are a lot of things to, you know, decry, to, um, you know, to, to say that oh, this whole situation is just abominable. There'd be lots of things that you could point out, but one of the things that, that seems to me to be particularly sad um, about this kind of situation is that it's not just the unity of a man and wife, but it's the greater unity that has now been built around the family. That there ought to be a unifying effect. Normatively, there is a unifying effect that comes through the children. Now, of course, in our day and age, this is not that uncommon. But even, even when, and again, this is, not, this is not good, this isn't normative, but even if a, you know, a husband and a wife should you know, not romantically or be deeply affectionate with one another anymore, still, and, we, and you should cultivate that, that should be, you know, that, that, should be that, that ought to be, not there, the fact that you have children ought to bind you together. And it's particularly heinous then when, when a husband or a wife just kind of checks out on the entire family and, and uh, abandons that unity. All right? So there's procreation or family uh, unifying effect. Let's take a look at one passage that illustrates this. Uh, turn with me to Malachi chapter 2, 14 to 15. We'll probably come back to several of these passages at multiple times um, during our lecture series. That's okay. Malachi 2, 14 to 15. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll look back to verse 13 to give you some context. Um, and the second thing you do, says God. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. 
Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So there is a, uh, a procreative goal in marriage that is part of the union. That's, that's part of the, the unfolding aspect of the union. And, uh, and I'm arguing, of course, maybe only inferred here. But I'm arguing that it ought to, that actually brings about greater union as well. All right, so we just gave three, or you might argue four, depending on how you look at it. One, two, three A, three B. But I gave three answers, we'll put it that way, to how male and female are united. Now, following a similar structure, we're going to ask the question, how is the one race of man differentiated in, or distinguished in male and female? Right? What are the differences between male and female? Um, so the first, and again, as the flip side to um, the fact that they share the same nature, which we saw in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So now under this perspective, the answer is that both male and female are needed to image God fully in the earth. Both male and female are needed to image God fully in the earth. Okay? So in the, in the first perspective that we took on how they're united, um, the point was, listen, any one of you are made in the image of God. Male and female, there's no differentiation. You're you're made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. Male, female, doesn't matter. You're all made in the image of God. Okay? But now here we're saying something a little bit different. It's something that is equally important. And that is that you alone, if you are female, or you alone, if you are male, cannot image God fully in the earth. The opposite sex is needed to fully image God in the earth. And, and this is clear, I mean, it's clear already in verse 27, I think. I mean, you could argue it's inferred, but it's there. But it, you know, it becomes clearer in God's mandate. Uh, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Again, another triad. Um, but notice that in verse 26, You've got the fact that God starts with, let us make man in our image. And then he moves to, let them have dominion. And then he reiterates this, but this time unfolding who mankind is. So God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And then again, it turns to dominion. Right? So you've got image, dominion, image, dominion. But the first image is singular. The second image is well, it mentions singular, but then it becomes pluralized. Here's the point. The point is that the dominion of man, namely to be fruitful, subdue, fill the earth, etc., subjugate it, that that is part of the image of God. Okay? Um, now, let me, let me have a little aside here. Okay? 
And that is that historically, there have been uh, three, generally speaking, three different perspective, perspectives on what constitutes the image of God and man. Uh, this is a big theological debate. You know, what's the image of God and man? And three answers have been given. And I argued in our Trinitarian lectures that I think it's actually all three. <laughs> and there's a triperspectivalism to it. The first is a sub substantive view that your, uh, your, your holiness, your mind, uh, these sorts of things, the substance of who you are images God. The second uh, view is relational, that as we relate to one another uh, and in communities, etc., that that constitutes the image of God. It reflects maybe in a particular way his triunity. And then thirdly, so you've got the, the substantive view, you've got the relational view, and then lastly, you've got the functional view. Uh, that is that as we do what God has created us to do, namely, be fruitful, multiply, etc., etc., that that is part of the image of God. And as I mentioned, I think it's actually all three. It makes a beautiful Trinitarian triad. Um, but coming back to, grabbing all of that and bringing it back to our point here, um, that part of the image of God, if it's at all functional, let alone relational, both those views require there to be male and female. If there's a relational aspect to the image of God, you need two different kinds of people to relate to. If there is a functional view in which we are to go forth and multiply, that requires male and female, you need, you need at least two. So, um, so it's important that we say to any person, you're made in the image of God. You're a woman, you're made in the image of God. You're a man, you're made in the image of God. But it's also important to say, listen, as a man, you actually cannot completely image God in the world. As a woman, you not, cannot completely image God in the world. All right? So that's the first uh, normative perspective, or the, you could say the upward perspective, or the perspective that most reflects the Father. That, that, the idea of nature here. All right? So... Um, Second of all, we've got the idea of, um, of, these, of these relations that I mentioned in the, under the section of unity that, there's, that, there, that we're from one another. But what we see, in fact, in, in Genesis is that there are distinctions in how they are made. And these distinctions are important. So, uh, I mentioned previously, look with me at Genesis chapter 2. I mentioned previously that man is made uh, first and woman is made second, um, that is, that's important. Uh, that's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, perhaps emphasizing men, the, uh, the, you know, the, the apostles argue that man being created first is, that there's some application that comes from that. Um, I do not permit a woman to, to teach or, have a, or to have authority over a man because well, Adam was created first, not, not Eve. So there's application to that. It's important to the, to the story of the Bible. Man is created first. Um, when you see something in Scripture, generally speaking, you see something in Scripture is first, there's some kind of emphasis there. Uh, it's not just making a list as if it could, uh, it's a grocery list, you know, you're, you're, somebody is 
you know, you go to the, the grocery store and you've got a list of 10 things you need to get. It doesn't matter what order they're in. It's just a, it's just a grocery list. No, no, it's not that kind of order. Right? It's not that kind of list. First usually means something in Scripture, and it does here. Um, so man is, is first, and just like Christ is called the firstborn, and thus the head of the church, and all things are created through him and for him, and all things in him all things hold together. He's the source being first. This idea of first is, is important. Um, I like to use the word primacy to, uh, to, for males. Right? You can write that down, primacy. I'm going to give a good word to women here in a second, too. <laughs> uh, primacy. But what we see is that, is that there's also great significance to the fact that women are created second. Now you might go, oh, they're created second, so that means they're lesser. No, no, no. You see, if you're carefully reading the Genesis story, you'll know that there is in fact a, uh, an ascension in the importance or the significance, I'm not sure what use, word to use there, <clears throat> of what is created. So for instance, you've got you know, birds and, and, uh, and fish that are created day five, and then you've got the beasts of the field created day six. Well, we're getting better here. We're getting kind of more elevated. We're, we're ascending here. And then you've, got, then you've got man who's created, and then last of all, woman. Woman. And there's some significance to that as well. Right? And this is reflected in the fact that, uh, you know, we say things like saving the last, best for last. Right? It's the same, same idea. Right? Or you have, uh, if you ever go to a concert, you always got a warm-up band. And you're going to have to wait for the, for the, you know, for the, the real thing. Right? Now, not, I don't mean to apply this in just kind of a, I'm, just, I'm trying to illustrate the principle that this principle actually does operate in a lot of areas of life. And the way that the scriptures represent this is that in 1 Corinthians 11, is that woman is the glory of man. Okay? Now, when it says that, it means something more than, uh, I mean, it might mean this, but it means something more than this. It means more than, you know, when a husband and wife walk in, well, the, the wife makes the guy look good. <laughs> yeah, that, that might be true. Um, but, but what it means is that within mankind, Woman, here's, here's the word I'm using for this distinction, is preeminent. Okay? She is promoted in a similar way. I think this is reflected in the relationship between the father and the son. Even though the father is, he has that primacy and he's first, he is head, yet Christ within creation is the one who is glorified and is seen to be preeminent and beautiful and glorious. All right, so there's some, some distinctions there uh, in how they are made. A couple of other distinctions uh, hold as well in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, Adam is created immediately by God, whereas woman is created mediately. Okay, not immediately, but mediately. All right, so God himself... Um, you know, makes Adam in sort of a direct way. Whereas uh, God takes, God creates Eve out of Adam. All right? Um, and again, you might think that, oh, well, that, that maybe emphasizes in some way, you know, male is greater. But not, not so fast. Hang on. 
You see, there's always, a, there's always a beautiful complementarity to these things. Because what is man made out of? Dust. Kind of something ignoble. Whereas woman is created out of flesh. All right? So there's, again, you, 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 might, be, you might be pulled to one side, but then you're, you're, you're balanced out on the other. Um, but there are distinctions in how male and female are created, uh, and this, and 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 they're knit together in these ways, right? So there's, you see the unity, but you also see the distinctions under the second aspect. Um, so moving now, and we're kind of approaching our end here, but now we move to the third aspect, and once again, I'm going to break it down into two: an enfolding aspect and an unfolding aspect. When it comes to an enfolding aspect. Um, we see that there are sexual and bodily distinctions between male and female. Now, again, one of the characteristics of the third part of any triad, this is one of the ways you can know whether you've got a triad right and whether it's reflecting the Trinity right, is the, the third aspect will always be the most kind of outwardly obvious. Um, there's a certain obviousness to the normativity as well, but in kind of a, in a different way. Um, but so... You know, for instance, I mean, I, I'm really, I'm not trying to be crass here today, all right? We, I need to be able to talk about sexual distinctions and even sexual body parts at points in this, uh, in this series. So I'm not trying to be crass, but if you ask, if you're trying to teach your two-year-old child, you know, what's the difference between a boy and a girl, right? You, what are you going to say? Where well, you're going to say boys have penises and women's have, women have vaginas, girls have vaginas, right? You're going you're to talk about those sexual and bodily distinctions that are just they're obvious, not obvious outwardly, but uh, there are other aspects of our, of our bodies that are, uh, that even though uh, those genital aspects are hidden, that there's other uh, bodily forms that would evidence this distinction, all right? But, but it's clear that there are distinctions, um, and of course, it's very sad to see that in our culture, that um, in, within the transgender movement and the medical aspects that are, that are taking place, that these things are being Disfigured, um, dis, you know, disformed, uh, very, very sad, these, these distinctions. Sadly, of course, they don't function to make the person the opposite sex. It, it really just deforms the body. Um, so that's the enfolding aspect because, uh, of course, it concerns our own bodies and it actually, uh, it's what creates that dyadic fit with one another in sexual union. Um, but lastly, what about the unfolding aspect? Um, well, in the unfolding aspect, there is a division of labor within the family, a division of labor. Uh, let me tell you a little, a little anecdote. Um, when I began to engage on um, issues around sexual orientation and gender identity online, well, especially transgender issues, um, I tell you, there were not a lot of people at that time that were engaging on the is these issues, partly because it was quite new. Uh, people weren't understanding <laughs> all the damage that was going to come to society once you start overturning the idea of, of sex and gender. Um, so we had, quite a, at that time, quite a tightly knit group of people that actually came from very uh, distinct experiences and political views. 
So at times I would, I would be fight, fighting right alongside radical feminists. I'm not a feminist, <laughs> but I'd be, you know, we, we'd be working together really closely. Or, or there were a couple of gay men that um, I worked pretty closely with. Um, and I would count friends. And of course we have some pretty significantly different views about some things. And they, they knew where I stood on things like, um, you know, same-sex sexual behavior. I, I've, never, I've never hidden my views by any means. Uh, but I remember at one time speaking to uh, a gay man who actually, I kept being surprised at how, I'll use the word conservative he was. Um, he was actually a scientist. Um, I, I never, well, no, I did get to know his name. I never got to know his last name because everything he did online, even though he engaged in a certain sense very publicly in advocacy, he, he kept his, his true name hidden because he was afraid he would lose his, his job as a scientist um, for engaging on these issues. But I remember uh, constantly being surprised by, wow, like, in my mind, I'm like, how are you gay? <laughs> because your views on, on marriage and family are like really quite conservative in a lot of ways. But then eventually I hit the point at which he would push back. And the point at which he would push back was this. He would say things like, well, okay, Paul, tell me, what is it that men can do that women can't? in society. And, you know, to a certain degree, you know, he, he's right. Obviously, he meant more than just, you know, that he understood the sexual function of having children. He wasn't talking about that. He was talking about other things. And, um, and there, there's, a, there's a certain sense in which, a certain nugget of truth to what he was saying. That there isn't much that women are Obviously, I'm just looking at things from one, one side of the male-female divide now. But there's a certain sense in which, yeah, you know, there's nothing really that women can't do that male, men can. But there are certainly things that men are better at or that women are better at. And this, these distinctions result in dyadic relationships, especially in divisions of labor. It means that as you build out your family, that men in most situations will gravitate to what it is that God has created them for in those relationships, in things like provision and protection of their families. Why? Well, because I mean, we're going to unpack all of this in subsequent lectures, but men are stronger than women. It's not remotely arguable. Look at any statistical data, and it, it's, it's perfectly clear. Um, but even, even kind of softer distinctions, like the fact that women are more, um, they're more relational. They're more relational. Well, that gets born out in family life when women start having children. And, well, God has designed women in bearing those children to also rearing them. It doesn't mean that the father cannot be at home. It doesn't mean that the father should not relate to his children. But it means that there's a division of labor that, is also, that also distinguishes male and female, that is actually very good. Um, that may look, it's not to say that that's going to look the same in every family, or that, you know, in different uh, couplings, that different people, you know, different, uh, the husband and wife may bring different things to the table in one family than the other. But there is a division of labor that is good in society. And, and you see this at play in the sad experience that, I mean, eventually, unless the Lord returns, 
if we're married, will, will happen to each one of us, which is that it's very rare for a husband and wife to be taken uh, to be with the Lord at exactly the same time. At some point, if you're married, either the husband or the wife will die first. And what often happens in those situations is not just all of the heartache in, in so many different ways, but you also have the fact that uh, sometimes one or, you know, that, that one, the one that's left behind, will struggle with the fact that in the division of labor that made so much sense and was so fruitful in the life of the family, that all of a sudden that person has been, hasn't been doing the other's job for 50 years. Now, it's kind of a negative example of the positive truth. The positive truth being that when two work together, you have a greater, you know, a greater uh, fruitfulness for, for your work, as it says in Ecclesiastes. Better, uh, better labor for your toil. This is certainly true in how God has created man. I think it is fair to say that we need one another. And so in creating male and female, by upholding those, um, those characteristics, that dyadic relationship, we are, we're actually giving um, honor to the other. We are, we are, we're doing, it, it leads into the second great commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, because we see how the other is different, how we need the other to bless and be fruitful in the earth and even to image God in all Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lectures series on sex, gender, and the image of God. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thanks very much. Take care.